This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Luca Levitz Mabler. And I'm Yannick Mignon. And what's our topic for this week, Yannick? The Sony Vio. Cool, but before you start, we have some follow-up. Well, not, not strictly speaking follow-up, but we do have some administrative notes. So first of all, uh, Limitless Possibility will be taking a brief holiday hiatus after the release of episode 196 on December 18th, 2022. And we will return with episode 197 on January 15th, 2023. Uh, so just take that into consideration as you listen through the next few episodes. Uh, speaking of episode 196, which is coming out on December 18th, that will be the Game of the Year episode. Uh, so it's coming up in almost exactly a month. So please tweet us your favorite games of the year or favorite games you've played this year, because I always like to hear what our listeners have been playing throughout the year, and maybe we'll shout out a couple of people on that episode. Uh, despite quote-unquote, not being on Twitter, uh, I, I will see your tweets, don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> All right, now let's get into the the actual topic. So this is a topic that uh, maybe unsurprisingly I've been wanting to talk about since about the same time that I started getting back into Minidisc. Uh, earlier this year, I watched a lot of Sony commercials, and I find watching 90s and 2000s consumer electronics commercials to be fascinating because it's always really interesting to see how different devices were positioned and how those that positioning differs from how we perceived it uh in the west especially when we're comparing like japanese and western commercials and marketing and all of that stuff and i think that a lot of sony products don't necessarily have as much marketing push here in the west than they do in japan where they have tons and tons of commercials that are on constantly uh and changing rapidly uh throughout a year you might see like 12 to 15 different uh commercials for a given product coming from sony uh and it's really interesting to see that evolution throughout the timeline of a product and to just take that into consideration when looking at these products and what's really interesting about the Vio is that the traditional PC business is incredibly boring to talk about most of the time, especially compared to talking about <laughs> Apple. Uh, so much of the business is just race to the bottom PCs that are designed to be as cheap as possible. Uh, even when you have uh, more premium brands, I would say like Dell or Lenovo that make, let's say, fancy business laptops those business laptops are very by-the-book design. So while they might be incredibly reliable and solid machines for the workplace, there's nothing exciting about them. Like the, the ThinkPad that I have for work, it is a spectacular machine, uh, except that my HDMI port doesn't work for some reason anymore. Uh, wow. But yeah, it's kind of a problem. Did, did you ever use it? Uh, I used it the day I started, and then it stopped working the week after. <laughs> what? <laughs> so it never worked or worked once. Wow. It worked once, yeah. Uh, and it's not the display. I tried multiple displays. But yeah, there's nothing exciting about those devices. They're just workhorses. And I think that if you look at in the last decade or so, definitely Microsoft's involvement in the PC hardware business with the service line has brought some excitement back to the PC space because they're doing fresh things with PCs. But before that, like pretty much the only person, uh, the only company that was doing anything interesting was Sony and the Vio line. Uh, Sony ran the Vio line of premium PCs from 1996 to 2014. Uh, in 2014, they spun it down into their old, uh, their own company, which is now known as Vio Corporation. Uh, and I think technically Sony still owns 
the name of Vio that they licensed to Vio Corporation. It's a very weird business arrangement. It's kind of like when <laughs> Microsoft was making Nokia phones and Nokia was making Nokia phones at the same time. It's kind of like that weird in-between space that I don't really understand how it works out. I do have another fun uh, mind-blown moment like this when I've learned that there are still two Kodak companies recently. Right, right, right. The one that produces and the one that distributes film. Yeah. Uh, Vio stand. First of all, let me ask you, what do you think Vio stands for? Oh, man. That I Are you quizzing me right now for reals? Because I remember you told me that multiple times in the past few years, especially once I started to watch more CRD videos with you. Uh, and I think you brought it up, but is it something like virtual uh, i don't recall but it's weird i remember each letter means something but it's something weird yeah so the original meaning of io they've changed it since then but it was a video audio integrated operation if you actually look at the vio logo very closely you'll see that the v and the a make a sine wave which represent the waveforms of video and audio signals. And the IO of integrated operation look like ones and zeros for bits, uh, which is kind of the visual meaning of the VIO logo, which is really interesting. Uh, VIO was also chosen because there are lots of violet accents on VIOs, which is kind of a dumb thing, but I really like that violet uh, <laughs> accent color on the VIOs. And the other thing is that uh, there is a custom boot sound for Vio machines, and that boot sound is actually the DTMF tones that you hear if you compose Vio on a telephone, which is really cute. Hmm. Uh, I, I really like that. Uh, so there's a lot of charm just in the Vio brand, and then when you actually get into the products themselves, they become even more interesting. Uh, but I think that if you look at Vio as it is seen through Western eyes, I think a lot of people know them especially for their laptops and their early push into the sub-notebook space. But in Japan, the product line is much broader and has a lot more specialized products. And that leads me to uh, one of the things I want to explain is something that took me quite a while to realize about the Japanese consumer market in comparison with ours. And that is that Cultural differences make it such that overly specialized products fare much, much better in Japan than they do overseas. And I think it's really interesting because as a tourist, when you go to Japan, you see a lot of highly specialized shops that you're, you don't really see over here. Like, sure, maybe in like big cities, you might see like the one model railroad, uh, store or whatever. Uh, in Japan, there are a lot more than just one model railroad, uh, store per city. Uh, there are multiple and you're like, how do they stay in business? There can't possibly be that many model railroad uh, fans out there. Or you'll see something like a doll clothing store where the clothes for dolls are worth more than my clothes. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? How can they get away with this? <laughs> and it's strange, but it does make sense when you think about it a little while. So work culture in Japan makes it such that Japanese adults have just generally a lot less free time than we do due to a combination of overtime and social obligations. When your boss tells you we're going drinking with uh, the rest of the company, you pretty much have to come along and you're going to stay until the last train probably. Uh, so 
you can pretty much forget about your weeknights most nights. Uh, it's a lot harder to have any kind of spare time. And with less free time, I think each Japanese person it can only allow themselves to focus on a very small number of hobbies, especially compared to Westerners who have a lot more free time. We can be more uh, leisurely and spread ourselves across multiple hobbies. Uh, they have to be a lot more picky. And with fewer hobbies, your main hobby gets to have more of your budget because you have fewer hobbies, naturally. Uh, you know what? That sounds like a fun problem to have. To be forced to focus on a single hobby? <laughs> or have more budget for one hobby than not have like, one budget for like three hobbies. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, furthermore, Japanese homes just have less space than we do. So people who live in Japan generally accumulate less things and junk than we do. And because of this, the things that they do buy uh, tend to mean a lot to them and are especially tailored to their lifestyle choices. And because of this uh, sort of confluence of factors, highly specialized products at premium prices become a lot more justifiable in the Japanese consumer market than they are here, where for some reason, like we always think like, oh, I have to get the most versatile thing uh, just because it might apply to more than one of my hobbies, so I can't afford to specialize my things too much. Uh, and I think like uh, it sort of plays out in how you see uh, the Vio product line versus many other Western companies' uh, PC product lines. Here, we pretty much just all decided that PCs are general-purpose computers that are all basically doing the same thing, which is everything. And Vio sort of changes that and says, let's start with a use case. How can we create the best PC for this use case? And there are a lot of really weird experiments that don't really go anywhere. And I think like for a lot of Vio products, the production lines, uh, sorry, the production runs of these devices are about 5,000. So there aren't a ton of them and they're going to be incredibly expensive. But in the in most cases, they actually turned out pretty well, uh, and they didn't lose any money on it. So let's start talking about uh, the Vio hardware. And I think one of the things that's very, uh, that distinguishes Vio from much of the PC business is industrial design. I think, uh, I don't think it is much about modern Vios, but if I look back at the, like the golden era of Vios in like the first half of the 2000s, I think they're iconic machines. I think that they had like just enough color to stand out with the violet accents and all of that stuff. Uh, and it just, it, it, it's a Sony. You see Sony product, you know that it's a Sony product when you see it. And as someone who just has a huge uh, sense of respect for a Sony industrial design, I just think they are a lot of the times beautiful machines. And if you go to the Sony design uh, gallery, which is a page on the Sony website where they sort of celebrate their favorite product designs of their, since the 1960s, I think uh, you'll see a couple of Vios there that are just like beautiful machines uh, that have aged incredibly well, despite in some cases having a Pentium one inside of them, you know? <laughs> uh 
And like I mentioned, uh, Vio is probably best known for their sub notebooks. I think the first Vio I ever personally heard about was the Vio C1 or picture book. Uh, this was a one kilogram sub notebook with an 8.9 inch LCD display. It was the first consumer laptop with a built-in webcam. So it's kind of a netbook before netbooks were even on anyone's radar because these shipped in 1998. Uh, the first two generations of picture books ran Windows 98, the third ran uh, ME and Windows 2000, and the fourth ran Windows XP. Uh, some of these shipped with Transmeta Crusoe processors, which are legendarily known for being incredibly slow and also incredibly power efficient. Uh, presumably, they are slow because they are power efficient. <laughs> Uh, but like these some notebooks, uh, I remember they were a huge deal because of how tiny they were and also how much of a pain they were to get to run with Linux. So if you were trying to do that back in the day because of how <laughs> much custom stuff was in them, um, but yeah, that's really what put Vio on the map for me. And they have never stopped having some sort of really tiny sub notebook in their product line. Uh, a little bit later, I think like in 2008, 2009-ish timeframe, there was the uh, Vio P series, which ran uh, Windows XP and Windows Vista, which were essentially a spiritual successor to the picture book, except much smaller. They were pocket-sized. You could put them like in a big jeans pocket, and I think they were like around a seven-inch screen. Um, but widescreen and those look amazing. I always wanted to get one. Uh, maybe I will someday. They remind me also a lot of the Toshiba Libretto, which is one of the other iconic Japanese PC designs that I really like for small uh, sub notebooks. Right, and isn't it the I forgot I forgot if it was the picture or the P that had the sliding keyboard. The sliding keyboard. There, there was one where it was kind of a oh. I was about to say a Nokia N-Gage, but not that. Kind of a sidekick style, but just bigger where the screen was in the middle and you would, you were able to flip it up and then reveal a keyboard. Oh, that's the UMPC. I, I was going to talk about that a little bit later, but I, oh, I can okay. skip to it right now. It doesn't matter. No, no, no. no, no, no. If you had a section of that, I'll be patient and wait. Well, I was going to go on to the next model anyway, so I, I'll just shuffle them so we can talk about it now. Uh, so... Yes, the the device you're talking about is the Vio UX Micro PC, which was released in 2006. Oh yeah, okay. I found it on on Wikipedia. Now. Yeah, yes. these were handheld Intel Core 2 solo PCs that ran Windows XP and Windows Vista. I remember seeing one in person at B and H in New York Ooh. the first time I went to New York City with my family, and I was wowed by it. A uh, friend of the show, Kimimi, got one earlier this year and wrote an article for PC Gamer about uh, using it as a portable gaming device, which is amazing and it is a really good article and she's tweeted a bunch about playing games on it as well i think right now she's actually playing like uh windows 95 magic the gathering game on it or something wow <laughs> uh it, it's really really cool and yeah like bio umpcs like umpcs i think never really worked out because like when you think about it for two seconds, running Windows Vista on a, like, let's say five inch screen, I think it's smaller than that, but an approximately five inch screen, like there's no way that was going to be good. Uh, trying to manipulate a full desktop OS on that kind of display, like there are definite trade-offs in usability. At the same time, it's really fucking cool. <laughs> it is cool. And it's worse than you remembered. It's 4.5 inches. Yeah, it was around that, yeah. Yeah, with a 1024 by 600 
re- display resolution. That's so small. Oh my god. Yeah, and I think the battery for those were incredibly short. Oh, I can't imagine. Hey, can you imagine there was Edge model too? So you can run them on, I see here, on singular. Can you imagine running, like doing, a, I don't know, going on IE and then just browsing the web on battery with Edge and then the shitty core solo CPU just draining <laughs> the battery. Oh, man. Okay, now I really want one. Oh. <laughs> wow. You just described exactly why this product sucks and you're like, wow, now I really want one. <laughs> yes, I just want to experience it. That's... I, I totally and I think I, I thought that was I was the goal I thought that was the goal of this episode to talk about weird Sony tech that might not be nice but still or that was nice but uh, at the strange limitation but we we want to try once in our lifetime. Well, it's really interesting because like this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'll I'll go with it. So we're fans of the Cathode Ray Dude uh, YouTube channel, which is a fantastic YouTube channel, mostly focusing on uh, retro consumer electronics and camcorders and cameras and all of that stuff. And Vios come up semi-regularly and just general Sony shit comes up a lot on the, yeah. on the channel. I uh, think it's better to put it this way, general Sony stuff. And a lot of the times like people like myself who are big fans of 90s and 2000s Sony will post really enthusiastic things about wacky Sony from the that era and one of the replies I got a lot on Twitter at the time was like why are you celebrating this company that does a bunch of weird proprietary shit and I'm like because the standards are standards and we already know everything about them. There's nothing weird about the standards, or if they are, there are pain points that we're stuck to live with, like HDMI and USB-C. But like when you're talking about completely proprietary things, there are so many weird things to talk about and get excited about that they're really interesting to discuss about 20 years later. Like, yes, the proprietary nature of those things can be a pain point in the era where that product is relevant but when you're 20 years removed from that product that being there you can really dig in and appreciate all of the weird decisions that went behind uh, these proprietary technologies and sony is just a never-ending gold mine of these because if you go and look at the wikipedia article uh i think it's called list of sony trademarks they own so <laughs> many fucking names it, like you can make a quiz show where i just ask you which of these sony trademarks are real or not and you would not be able to tell the difference because there's so much dumb shit they trademarked and all of them are various applications or devices or standards that failed somehow and most of it is proprietary to sony right and i, I think it's like uh, I think time allows to be fond of bad decisions. Yes. And I think a lot of proper, proper, proprietary tech, oh my goodness, I was hard to is a lot of that in the present. Like you don't understand why they haven't used SD cards in their camera and just invented memory stick, for example, uh, and things like that. But nowadays, now that the format, I don't want to say it's dead, but let's say for the sake of conversation that it is, that you have time on your side to just remember why they decided to go down that road and why in perspective now because of 20 years, it was a bad decision. And it's funny that it's a bad decision, not because we're making fun of that, because we're more or less fun of that time where they were trying to be bold. Yeah, and I think another thing that's really interesting is that 
proprietary or not, a lot of these technologies come from a time when technology still had a positive connotation in people's view of where we were headed. And especially nowadays where we have a lot of technology that just seems to be about extracting more money out of our pockets on a regular basis via services, it's a lot less easy to get excited about modern day technology because you're viewing it through like the super cynical angle 90% of the time because either uh, they're trying to monetize you as a service or they're trying to monetize you as advertising and both of those are just shitty boring things to discuss whereas back in the day they were just trying to sell you crazy shit and it's a lot more exciting to be interested uh, it's a lot more interesting to be excited about crazy shit than it is to be excited about advertising and services. Um, although Sony has their fair share of weird ass services that we may discuss <laughs> <laughs> later. Um, yeah. Let, let's not ignore that. Yeah. Yeah. They, they have no shortage of that. And I think they've had like 20 different streaming music or uh, music stores in the last 20 years it's like they, they never stop uh but anyway we should probably get back to pc hardware aside from sub notebooks and umpcs vio especially in the west i think one of the things that broke through is they had a line of what they called living room pcs do, do you remember these at all no i do not so i think this was around the time of the iphone so maybe we were too distracted by the iPhone to care. <laughs> uh, but they shipped one of these things called the VGXTP1. It looks like a giant white Roomba, but it's actually a home theater PC running Windows Vista. Uh, huh. It is powered by Intel Vive, which I forgot existed. That was the VIIV Intel badge, which is an, it's a brand that doesn't mean anything. It's like Centrino. It's just like, we put this brand name on an Intel thing. Uh, but I think Vive was like their home theater PC initiative thing. Uh, and yeah, it's a really weird Roomba shaped PC. I saw an ad for this machine, which looks absolutely terrible because it's just like the family browsing Internet Explorer 7 on the TV in the living room with wow. the remote control. Sounds fun. And it's not even like a TV-shaped UI for Internet Explorer 7. It's literally desktop Internet Explorer 7 running with a remote control and no keyboard. Very strange device. Um, but again, like the, I found out about this through the Sony Design Gallery once again because it is a beautiful piece of hardware that was wasted on this horrible idea. <laughs> To have a Roomba-shaped TV under the uh, Roomba-shaped PC under the TV that can be used as a home theater. Now, this is around the time though that uh, Windows XP and Windows Vista had uh, Media Center edition of Windows that came with it, uh, which was this whole front end for uh, IPTV, which was Microsoft's big thing for like a decade. And uh, any video that you had locally on your uh, Windows PC, you could have all of your Windows Media music in there as well. So it, it was a, it was kind of like Front Row was on Apple platforms. It was just honestly more fleshed out. I think you could even use it as a TVR. Yeah, you could. And it was green, green everywhere. Uh, I think the Vista version that I saw in the ad was blue. But yes, the, oh, yeah. it was green on Windows XP, I think. Yeah, the XP version. And you know what? I found a picture of this computer and it is literally a Roomba. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, it's a white Roomba. It's like Apple making a white Roomba. 
It's a white Roomba, except this says Vio on top, and you're like, that's- what the fuck happened here? <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Uh, still on the topic of hardware, I think one of the things that's really interesting as well about uh, Vio as a line of PCs is that because it's a Sony product, they tend to integrate with strategic Sony technologies. So it wasn't uncommon to find Vio laptops with built-in memory stick slots that you could use to offload your uh, uh, your camera photos or whatever, uh, assuming you had a cyber shot, of course. Uh, one of the things that I value as a Mac user is that it was not uncommon to find Vio devices with iLink, which is Sony branded Firewire, mm. because a lot of the PC industry just pretended Firewire didn't exist because it wasn't relevant to anyone because nobody owned a camcorder except for Sony Vio owners and Mac owners who wanted their Firewire. Um, then there's just like sometimes Sony just wants to duct tape another piece of Sony con- uh, consumer electronics to a Vio for some reason. So I'm thinking here of the Vio PCV MX2, which is the mini disc mini stereo unit that is integrated into a PC tower for no reason, where it almost has no integration with the PC itself. You can just put mini discs into the PC tower and plug it to speakers and you can play mini discs while you use your PC. I think there's one utility that integrates with the drive that lets you change the titles on the mini disc, but that's it. Like everything, there's no other integration. It's just literally a mini disc player duct taped to a PC tower. Uh, it's a beautiful PC tower though, uh, but it's still kind of duct taped onto it. Uh, and the purple version of it looks amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, they they all look amazing, really. True, true. <laughs> but like you cannot, uh, when it got released, if you didn't get the purple version, I'm 20 years in the future shaming you. Oh, it's true, it's true. Uh, another notable uh, integration of Sony tech into Avio is, of course, the PC GGT1, which is the one that Cathode Ray Dude did an extensive video about, which is essentially a Sony camcorder integrated into a laptop, which is a fantastic video that you should absolutely pause the podcast and go watch right now, because I don't want to say anything that spoils it. Because it's there, there are so many galaxy brain things in that video that you need to <laughs> so many to watch yourself. You'll have to put the link in our show notes. Yes, I, I've already got them in my notes right now. Perfect. That's kind of a quick little tour of Vio hardware, but that's only a part of the story because, of course, Sony wrote a ton of unique software for the Vio, uh, and weirdly enough like you could sometimes get some of these apps if you bought other sony products uh i'll mention them a little bit uh everywhere one of them no well two two of them noticeably were not uh were, sorry two of them were vio exclusive pieces of software that are really interesting uh, interesting and sometimes bad as well <laughs> But yeah, so there there was a whole Vio software suite, and uh, if you go look at old um, factory default images of these Vios, the Vio software suite sort of slogan was communication, creation, entertainment. Like those were the three main themes of what they were aiming to do with their suite of software on the Vio, and I think you'll see that reflected in the apps that I've chosen to talk about. 
uh, throughout this episode. So the first one I want to talk about is Visual Flow, which is straight out of a 1994 movie. It looks like some made-up bullshit UI uh, that someone would make for a fictional computer user interface. But no, they actually shipped this and thought it was a good idea. It's a <laughs> visual file browser. Uh, that you can navigate, except for some reason, all of your files are in some sort of weird double helix DNA, like 3D positioning. I don't know why. They just thought it looked cool. It's literally just a visual file browser. Uh, what's interesting about uh, Visual Flow, though, is that it, sh- it shipped in 1997, which means this predates thumbnails in Windows Explorer by many years. Uh, Windows Explorer did not have thumbnails until Windows 2000 and Windows ME. So you could basically browse uh, folders full of images or stuff like that and have rich previews, and you could browse them like that. It's sort of like a really ugly ancestor to CoverFlow, which is a much better implementation of this sort of visually thumbing through a large collection of, uh, of images or files on your file system. And I think what's really interesting about Visual Flow is that it is one of few applications that actually integrates with uh, jog dial controls that find themselves in a lot of IO computers, namely a lot of laptops that are made to be used as handheld devices instead of actual laptops. Um, I can think of a couple of them that are actually meant to be used uh, two-handed, where you have like a small seven or eight inch screen that is meant to be used as a handheld device where you almost have like a little gamepad thing uh, on top of the keyboard that you can hold onto to manipulate the UI. And oftentimes these also have jog dials uh, that you can use to uh, basically scroll around certain VIO specific applications, including visual flow. Uh, so this one is oddly enough, it has like a vendor check. So if you actually try to run this application on a non-VIO computer, it just doesn't run, (laughs) which is a weird thing to lock to the VIO. That's fun. Yeah. Classic Sony. I was about to say that classic Sony. Yeah. (laughs) So next application I want to talk about is Movie Shaker, which, uh, you can see in the Fantastic CRD video about the PCG GT1. It is a video editing suite made for VIO. Uh, it was later reused as a companion app for the Sony proprietary micro MV tape format from the early 2000s, which lasted only five years. Uh, I literally had never heard of this tape format before. It's that unpopular. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Movie Shaker is really cool. Well, it's really cool. It's really cringe, but it's also really funny. Uh, it's basically, uh... Like the name implies, Movie Shaker, uh, you take little clips uh, with your various cameras and whatever, you dump them into the application, and the shaker mode is basically this automatic uh, movie creation thing that takes in your clips and automatically inserts titles and transitions and effects to your video, as well as a backing movie track. Uh, so I, I think iMovie had a feature like that at some point, where you could just like say here are my clips just make me a video please and i'll fuck with it afterwards uh movie shaker doesn't give you the flexibility of fucking with it afterwards it just renders the whole thing and that's what you're stuck with and the presets that they have for these videos make me so happy because they're so they're so typical of that era where it's like early 2000s video editing where no one really knows 
what looks good. <laughs> and they just put out some really cringe uh presets and i don't know it's absolutely hilarious definitely watch the crd video on the pc ggt1 uh camcorder laptop if you want to see actual movie shaker videos uh because they're hilarious um you can also use it as a more traditional uh non-timeline editor where you just drag clips in order and you can manually insert transitions and i believe music tracks as well uh it's not a super flexible video editor but i suppose that at the time it got the job done. Next application I want to talk about is Picture Gear. Uh, this is a photo library viewer. And I mean that literally, it is just a viewer. <laughs> Has no <laughs> no editing features, just organization. Sounds fun. Yeah. I didn't realize it sort of only had organizational features. So it's basically just another file browser, really. It's just specifically tailored for uh, large image files and i think one of the most amazing particularities about picture gear is that it supports a wacky kodak image format called FlashPix. have you ever heard of FlashPix before no what okay. is that okay this is very much like we don't understand how the internet works so we're going to design something for the internet and it's going to seem insane once people actually realize what what we're doing so Imagine taking a photo with your camera and you save it in full quality, but then you also save in the same file eight smaller sub-resolutions that are each the quarter of the resolution of your previous sub-resolution. So you essentially save the photo nine times, one time at full quality, then quarter res, then quarter res of that, then quarter res of that, and then quarter res of that. Uh, So if you start with, let's say, a 10K uh, horizontal image, uh, ten, like a four by three image with 10k horizontal pixels uh, your smallest uh, sub-resolution will be 40 pixels by 30 pixels big in i believe eight by eight pixel tiles and uh yeah so you have like all of this range of sub-resolutions and the reasoning behind this file format is that if you include all of the uh, sub-resolutions, your image is only going to be 33% larger than your original full-size image. And you can write software that can just fetch the bytes for the sub-resolution that you need to display a given size of an image if you know what size you're going to be displaying it at ahead of time. Uh, and they're stored as tiles of uh, a certain number of pixels by a certain number of pixels. So this means if you take the full quality image, but you are zoomed in on, let's say, a 640 by 480 frame of that, well, you only need to fit, fetch a certain number of tiles of that. You don't need to fetch the full image. And the intent behind this crazy-ass file format was that you would have a browser plugin that would dynamically request and download the sub-resolution that is relevant to the uh, to the size that you are displaying in your browser when displaying images on the web. Now, I'm going to uh, just mention here that when we're talking about the size of full images in this format, like the 10,000 horizontal uh, width 4x3 image that I was talking about earlier, that's a 700 megabyte photo. It's a very large photo, and essentially you would be storing this 700 megabyte photo on your server, but then your clients would be saying... Actually, I only want to have the 196 kilobytes or whatever that I'm actually going to display in the browser, which seems like incredibly wasteful usage of your very limited drive 
capacity at this time in the early 2000s. I don't know what they were thinking, but many of the sample images included with Picture Gear in the default uh, VIO photo library are stored in this wacky-ass format, and Picture Gear is one of the few pieces of software that was actually written to support this garbage. <laughs> and that is hilarious to me. Uh, but amazingly, that was a Kodak technology, not a Sony one. But yeah, otherwise Picture Gear has nothing really interesting about it. It's just a photo viewer. <laughs> okay, so th that was the only interesting thing is this uh, weird format that, according to what I read here, it's not only a Kodak thing, it's a Kodak, Microsoft, and HP, and a dead company like called Life Picture. Yeah, they, huh. had, they had some weird consortium thing, but as far as I can tell, like the patents for it and all that stuff belong to Kodak. Really? Yeah. Wow. Fundamentally, the intent here is that Sony wanted to have something for you to catalog the photos that you were taking with whatever Sony camera you were using at the time, whether it was a Cybershot, whether it was still a Mavica or whatever. Uh, they wanted you to be able to catalog your digital photos. Maybe they didn't do the best job of having editing stuff there. Maybe they were just thinking about it still in early digital photography days where you weren't really editing your photos because you were still kind of thinking of it as an analog to film. Okay, that's a bad choice of words because it's digital. But uh, <laughs> you're thinking of people who are mostly taking snapshots and not really editing their photos after the fact. Uh, and that would become more popular uh, much later after Picture Gear was no longer really being maintained at all. Uh, next application, you can sort of see what the theme is. Uh, it's going to be a music application, and of course I'm talking about OpenMG Jukebox, which later became Sonic Stage, or vice versa. Uh, the version history of OpenMG Jukebox and Sonic Stage is incredibly confusing to me, and I am someone who is deeply invested in minidiscs, so imagine someone who isn't. Uh, and this is a music player and manager for use alongside a whole bunch of Sony digital audio players. Uh, OpenMG stands for open magic gate and magic gate is the drm that a lot of sony's stuff around this era used uh if you look at the playstation 2 memory card it says magic gate on it yes it is the same drm as you see on mini discs uh huh. yeah that i didn't know yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's also on memory sticks <laughs> hilariously of enough of course uh so if you happen to own a net md high md uh, mini disc recorder or a network walkman or a sony clie which is another episode in itself but it's basically sony's entire line of palm os pdas that they released during this era uh, all of those can be hooked up to openmg jukebox or sonic stage and you can uh put music on those devices uh but of course you can't put mp3s on those devices because that would make too much sense uh this is one of the few pieces of software in the world capable of playing music in sony's proprietary a track audio format which is the same codec that is used on mini disc because of course it is it's fucking Sony. Uh, and as I mentioned to Dugatipi as I was preparing for this episode, I found out that A-Track is not technically dead. It is dead as a consumer audio format, but it is still used internally within the PlayStation 5, which blew my mind. The PlayStation 4 and PlayStation Vita, except they are all using a super new version of it called A-Track 9, whereas the last one that shipped on a mini disc device was A-Track 3. Speaking of that, like one thing I forgot to ask you is 
you mentioned it's not a consumer format anymore, but what is what is it used for on those game consoles? I think it may actually be involved in some of the 3D audio stuff they're doing, which is kind of cringe. Oh. Um, it might also just be the file format that they use for UI sounds in the user interface. Like, I, I mm. honestly don't know why you would choose to do that. I feel like there must be so much more hardware support for playing MP3s or AACs or even fucking Aug Vorbis these days. But, um, yeah, it, it just... It, part of the os i think maybe voice chat too is a track mm, i see i see yeah it's or you know what we're talking about sony here maybe the reason is why not use our own format for certain video games reasons that we don't want to share things i don't know why but let's use our own format that wouldn't surprise me either definitely japan has a big uh not invented here syndrome uh which is just like it's part of the reason that fighting games have not had rollback for the last 10 years, even though it's been a commonplace <laughs> in every Western uh, fighting game. It's just like, if it wasn't invented here, we pretend it doesn't exist and uh, yell and yeah, we do move along in ignorance. Um, and Sony is even worse at that than Japan in general, just because they have such a history of, having all of those trademarks that they don't know what to do with and all of that weird tech on standby like we made this one time we might as well use it for something <laughs> and i think that's probably it and also like if you've already got a, an audio codec that you don't have to pay any patents for it probably makes sense that you would want to use your own audio codec as much as possible instead of licensing out patents even though in the grand scheme of things like we know the PS5 can play MP3 files. Like, it literally does that if you install the music player app onto it. Like, it's not rocket science. So, I don't know. It's it's a Sony. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good summary. Yeah. Okay, last piece of software I want to talk about uh, for this Vio is honestly the most interesting one, and it's one that I want to install on uh, my PC when I get the chance, and that is safari or community places and this is the metaverse in 1997 Ooh! so safari was a network of vrml or vermal 3d chat rooms that came pre-installed on a lot of vio computers uh, japanese wikipedia says that at some point they had hundreds of thousands of users i don't know if i believe that um but that's what it said. Uh, originally, it, this was a free service. Uh, but in 2001, the service's popularity got to such a point that uh, it actually became prohibitively expensive for Sony to keep running the servers. So they started charging three bucks a month. And that killed the service within two years because nobody wanted to pay for it. So everybody loved it up until the point they wanted to pay for it, which is honestly just the story of social media uh it was the same in 1997 as it is now and what is fascinating about safari is that somehow there was public server software for this so it was actually preserved and recently huh. thanks to community efforts there's just a discord full of people who are just like having fun in safari and making shit for safari in 2022 
Um, so I'm really excited about this. Like, it, it looks like shit. Let's be honest. It's Vermal <laughs> from 1997. Like, it, it never looked good. Um, but that's part of the charm. It's just fascinating that this is still around and you can run it. And I believe the server can only handle up to 12 people in the same environment as at once. So it's very limited in what it can do. 12 um, people. Oh my God. But it's also like super entertaining that Facebook is trying to do basically the same thing that Safari did in 1997. And I don't know which will be more successful, honestly. Uh, right now, Safari seems like it's in the lead because it had hundreds of thousands of people that were excited about it in 1997. And I can't say the same about Horizon Worlds or whatever it's called. Uh, so maybe at some point we should actually make this like a topic for an episode where you and me actually just install Safari on our PCs and we go fuck around and see what we can find because that seems like it would be really funny. Yeah, that sounds like a funny episode idea. I yeah. agree. Yeah, so maybe I'll put that on the list. Yes. No, no, no not maybe. You should Definitely, put it on we'll put yeah. it on the list. Okay. Um, so that those are kind of the highlights of the uh, Vio software suite. There are a lot more applications, like like basically any Japanese laptop. Like there are a billion ads for Japanese ISPs that don't exist anymore uh, that come pre-installed on these things. Uh, there was a a GPS map application called Navinu, I think, that uh, was on these for a while as well. Uh, there are a lot more applications that are a lot more tailored. Uh, some of them were only included with specific uh, specific models. For example, uh, the Sony camcorder duct tape to Avio uh, had a piece of video capture software called Urexite, which I believe I have seen on multiple Sony Vios, but mainly the ones that had built-in cameras. Um, so depending on the era of Vio and sort of the the niche that that Vio was catered to, uh, you may have different applications uh, to get excited about. What's really interesting as well with these uh, software tools is that a lot of these software tools are complemented by owning other Sony products. Movie Shaker is a lot more interesting if you have a Sony DV camcorder. Picture Gear is a lot more interesting if you have a Cybershot. And obviously OpenMG Jukebox slash Sonic Stage are a lot more interesting applications if you can take your music with you on the go with a NetMD recorder or a network Walkman. And I think that's really smart. And that leads me to sort of the realization that led me to uh, make this episode in the first place, which is the realization I had when I was watching all of those Vio commercials earlier this year, is that Sony was really uniquely positioned compared to everyone else in the uh, in the PC space and the consumer electronics space because they could almost go one-to-one with Apple's digital hub strategy. Uh, the digital hub strategy of the early 2000s when uh, Steve Jobs returned to the company and OS X was starting to roll out was that the personal computer should be the central hub for a family's media, namely photos, videos, and music. And uh, the iLife suite of software, iTunes, iPhoto, iMovie, and to some degree iDVD as well, uh, was specifically made to provide easy ways of organizing, editing, and sharing all of those different media types. And I think it's really funny in context because 
uh, if you go back and look at the keynotes for a lot of these uh, iLife announcements and explaining the digital hub strategy, uh, Steve Jobs would often feature Sony Consumer Electronics and their sort of photos of like what a digital hub for a family would look like. They'd be like, well, of course, you take your video off your Handycam or whatever. Uh, And what's really interesting is like, Sony, to some degree, is even more deeply integrated than Apple was at the time. Like, sure, they're not making the operating system. They're still relying on Windows, though Vio, to be honest, does have a weird flavor of Windows with all of the weird crap that they put on it. And I I say weird crap in a non-derogatory way. I mean, like, they have their own... Like, all of their uh, suite of software has their own custom UI, which does not look like traditional Windows. In fact, it actually looks nicer than traditional Windows to me a lot of the time, uh, which is really interesting. Uh, it even has their own theme system as well, where you can change, like, the colors of your UI to match, like, various... I, I think they have different time of day themes as well. So you can time it so that if it's the sunset right now, you can have the sunset theme in your Vio apps. It's like, okay, sure. You were way ahead of time of the times because it took us like until five years ago to have that on the Mac. But yeah, Sony is even more integrated because Sony makes the PC hardware. They make the software that runs on the PC. Uh, that's part of the Vio suite. They make industry leading camcorders, digital cameras, music players, and They control proprietary technologies and de facto standards in all of those spaces. And if Sony had been good at PC software user experience, which they are not and they (laughs) were not, they could have really been an attractive competitor to what Apple was offering. Unfortunately, Sony still has not gotten better at their PC software user experience. You can also sort of make the case that all of their software across all of their devices has never really ever been that good. And that's tragic. They they could have done a much better job. And I think it would have been interesting to see a world in which Apple actually had a decent competitor in the space because they mostly were uncon- uncontested in this weird world of like giving a complete multimedia ecosystem for consumers. Uh, And if anybody could do it, Sony could have done it, but they just weren't able to nail the software quality to the degree that they needed to. And I I, I sort of want to know, like, what do you think about that? Do you think it would have been nice to see Sony doing better in that degree? Or is it just more entertaining 20 years after the fact that they sucked at it? (laughs) Oh, you're asking me? Oh, it's hard to choose, but I tend to be on the it's better that they suck so we can fun now <laughs> not fun at them but i think it's again to be fun of their tries and i think they've tried a lot of things and the like the, the late 90s and early 2000s it was a strange moment for a lot of things and it's funny when i r- reminisce on a lot of the tech we've seen there compared to what we have today and the, the comment you made earlier that when you're in it, like in the present, everything feels bland and all the same. But then you go back to things people tried before. And it's like people are trying to be bold. And I think this can be uh, commending of Sony saying they tried to be bold. They, they mainly failed badly at it, but <laughs> at least they tried something. And there are a couple of things that like I think to this day compared to the tech at that time, it was better. Like, I think the MD is like 
I mean, this is that. Uh, we can talk about the consoles. We can talk about certain things that they've tried with the um, netbook era things. I think they had like ultra PC way better like way better ultra pcs or netbook style pcs before netbook were popular in the 2010s let's put it this way so i think for certain things they were trendsetters but on a lot of those trends they were trendsetters on trends that stick for like three or four years uh which was not that great for them in the end and I think a lot of times Sony has the right idea about where the technology is headed. They're just there way too, way too early. Like the picture book coming out in 1998, essentially being a netbook before anyone has any idea what a netbook will be. Like they were there and they were correct. And that device mostly flopped because it was way too early to the market that people did not understand. First of all, Wi-Fi wasn't even a thing, right? So it's really strange mm-hmm. that you're making this ultra-portable device with a webcam, and yet there's no wireless internet. Uh, like, the first Wi-Fi cards were going to come out a year after uh, the picture book, because the iBook came out in late 99, and that was one of the first consumer Wi-Fi cards you could buy, right? So it's... It's strange that Sony is often really early to this stuff. And to a certain degree, this also applies to the Clie, which is their Palm OS uh, line of stuff. They were doing incredibly galaxy brain stuff on PDAs way ahead of everyone else. They were doing music playback and I think even video playback to some degree, uh, full color PDAs, high resolution PDA screens way before anybody else and because they were there in 2001 and not in 2007 when the iphone came out like noticeably of course they didn't have a phone clie they only had pda clie which i believe is important obviously but if they had shown up five years later with a phone version of that they would have been competitive with the iphone it's just they they were too early to it again and it flopped because nobody wanted to pay massive premium prices for that well okay my, my dad did he had a clear he was really cool uh Ooh, I, I didn't know that i didn't know that your dad had the clear it was awesome to be honest i i, I really like that device apparently clears have uh, terrible reliability which is why it's actually really hard to find one that actually works nowadays oh. um but yeah it's it, it was a really, really cool device at the time, and it had that Sony futurism baked into it, much like much of the Vio did. It's just they were there too early, and I think that's sort of the curse with Sony, is that so much of what they do is too early or is locked up in so much weird proprietary bullshit that it kind of gets away from them when someone actually does something that is less locked into the Sony ecosystem. Do you know if there was like a specific part that was the Achilles ill of the clear or it was just generally kind of poorly built? So that's why it didn't last through time. I don't think it's necessarily poorly built, but I think there was so much custom stuff in it that mm. it's hard to replace and repair, if that uh, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah, is often the case for weird Sony shit, because <laughs> like, yeah. what are you going to do? Um, but uh, yeah. Um, so that's kind of the whirlwind tour I wanted to do of the Vio line of hardware and software. Uh, I have a massive appreciation for the Vio stuff these days. I have a couple Vios that I occasionally look for on eBay to see if I can s- snatch my favorite uh, devices uh, just for 
collecting and messing around on like usually when i buy things that are like retro hardware like that i'm very much in the camp of trying to use those devices uh, regularly instead of just having it to put it on the shelf somewhere uh so don't worry i'm not just like buying up old vios to let them gather dust i would actually have stuff to do on them um but yeah i just continue to be fascinated by this era when technology was still exciting and i always think it's exciting just from a personal software development era uh personal software development uh point of view is i love seeing different software suites because it makes me wonder like if Cesura is part of my imaginary software suite for what i would make for my personal computer like are there any ideas I can incorporate from what was done on the VIO that were actually good ideas that never actually ended up anywhere, except there's something to be learned there that I could benefit from. And honestly, like going through these uh, apps for this episode, like I don't think there really are any things that I want to steal for Cesura or for any potential <laughs> other applications in my desktop suite. But I always really appreciate taking the time to learn more about the software anyway, just because I find it fascinating to just get a peek at the world that could have been if Sony had dominated uh, the PC business at the time. So that's pretty much it. Good. So you can find the show notes for this episode at limitlesspossibility.net slash 194 so that's 194 you can also find our back catalog of episodes at limitlesspossibility.net you can find the show on twitter at limipo underscore podcast that's l-i-m-i-p-o underscore podcast and for this week i'm doing a different outro since i guess we can say that twitter is going down the drain i've decided that we should promote something on the web that we own so wow. you can find my photo blog at lucolivierdb.me so that's l-u-c-o-l-i-v-i-e-r-d-b dot me and you can find yannick at r-ch.net good and we'll see you in two weeks see you in two weeks